Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome back to A Freedom of Ideas. Continuing our discussion on European notions of reason and freedom and their relationship with imperialism, we'll continue today with a discussion about what exactly this process of spreading European modes of reasoning actually looked like. The social, military, legal, sometimes scholarly efforts to, you know, as we've been talking about it, to change the minds of really the better part of the world. And we can further divide that into a discussion about how this process occurred in what we would call more indigenous societies, as opposed to what we would call more settled societies. Now, this distinction is one that doesn't work if we try and get either too granule or too literal. Of course, everyone who was a subject of imperialism was likely far more quote-unquote, indigenous to their place than were the imperialists themselves. The most important distinction we're making here is between folks who live in, we would say, circumstances more akin to what Europeans would recognize as settled societies. Meaning, for example, India and China and other places where, where folks are living in towns and cities under more or less, quote-unquote, standard governments where they're conducting commerce and all the rest of it, versus what we would describe as indigenous or native or first peoples, to give you just a few of the words we commonly hear used to describe folks who were, at least at this time, not necessarily, not necessarily settled into fixed communities, certainly not into cities, and certainly not into circumstances of commerce and exchange that the English or other European imperialists were likely to recognize as kin to their own. So, again, uh, not the most exact distinction, but uh, it's an important distinction. When we look at the mechanisms of imperialism, it is important to make that distinction and see how differently imperialism looked and operated in these two different kinds of societies. Now, once we've discussed some aspects of imperialism in indigenous communities, though I, I can never say enough that to discuss one aspect or a few aspects of imperialism is to risk tricking ourselves into failing to understand its varied forms and the massive extent of its impact and the destruction that resulted from it. But once we've spoken about just really just one aspect of the colonizing of the mind, so-called, in indigenous communities, we'll transition to looking at the mechanism of imperialism in more settled societies, specifically by focusing on India. We'll start this effort in the next episode, and I believe we'll continue it in the episode following that. So now, if I've already told you that this is kind of a blurry distinction between indigenous and settled societies, why am I making this distinction right off the bat here? Well, the fact of these being two apparently very different kinds of societies in the eyes of the imperialists, and more precisely, the fact that the imperialists would more or less automatically ascribe very different levels of value and humanity to these two broad categories of societies. That means that the difference in the way the imperialists perceive these two kinds of societies means that both imperialism and the process of the colonization of the mind, the means by which imperialism had such a significant effect on how most of the world thinks, all of this is going to look very different in those two different kinds of societies. 
So to begin with the less settled, more indigenous communities and societies, the process of imperialism is, to, I mean, to be frank, and I don't think we can be frank enough about this, the process of imperialism is typically unimaginably brutal. The more so, I believe, than even the quite brutal process of imperialism as it was enacted in, in more settled societies. To, to put it glibly, it would seem that European imperialists saw in indigenous societies, they saw them as being markedly less advanced, markedly less, and this is a more accurate way to say it, markedly less like their own societies. And thus, the imperialists, seeing these societies that are very different than their own, decided that indigenous peoples they encountered were even less deserving of humane treatment than were the folks in more settled societies. Of course, it's not too hard to see in this yet another aspect of what we've been calling rational chauvinism. The idea that there's a kind of cultural, rational measuring stick that can tell us how, quote-unquote, mature a people are, to use Mill's formulation of the idea. So, really, what we're trying to decide when we set up a scale like that, we're trying to decide how similar or dissimilar a people are to the European imperialists, right? That, that's the rational chauvinism. That's the act of saying, we have kind of figured out the apex of this use of the human mind. Let's figure out how far down the scale we need to place you in comparison to we imperialists who are up here at the peak. And what we see in the distinction between the way imperialists treated settled and indigenous societies is that the permissible despotism that Mill promoted could be considerably more despotic, more cruel, when applied to people who were, according to the imperialists, further down that scale of maturity and rationality. People who acted and spoke and thought and lived and exchanged goods very, very differently than the imperialists themselves did. Add to that that indigenous communities were, of course, by their nature, less populated and thus far less capable of mounting any kind of significant military defense against the technology of the imperialists. And with that sort of added into the mix, you have both the motive and the opportunity to enact inhumanity on an absolutely remarkable and unprecedented scale. Now, as we've discussed, the process of imperialism in indigenous societies was, and some would say, and not without reason, they would say it, this process continues to be a process of genocide, a process of rape on a scale that ranged from the personal to the societal. It was a process of slavery and economic and cultural pillaging. It was a process that attempted the destruction of tradition, of history, and identity through a variety of means. And with all that said, perhaps I needn't further say that there are certain to be some unpleasant details in this podcast to come. So please be mindful. I, of course, this is a podcast about philosophy. Typically, we are, it's a pretty uh, antiseptic, scholarly kind of environment. Unfortunately, we just can't do that today to give even the slightest glimmer of the reality of what this process looked like in indigenous communities. Though I should say that I, I probably don't have the, the power of language, and we, we certainly don't have the time here today to tell the true story on the level of the, the brutality that was actually experienced, a, a level of brutality that the histories most of us are taught very much obscures. But, you know, I, I, I digress. 
Now, perhaps the most ev evocative examples, one of the most evocative examples of this process of quote-unquote changing of minds that occurred in imperialism, or we could also equally call it cultural erasure, or we could call it colonization of the mind. Whatever term we use to describe this, one of the most evocative examples is uh, the example of the so-called Indian boarding schools here in North America and in elsewhere. Now, as many of you might have heard, the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative under the Department of, in of the Interior recently released the first in what I believe will be a series of reports on these schools and their operations specifically here in the United States. Now, the report begins thusly, and keep in mind, I, I just want to be very clear, because this is a, a report sponsored by the United States government, of course, it only talks about schools in the United States of America. It does not talk about the schools in Canada or Australia or any of the other countries where they were used. And by the way, also, uh, all links to all of the source materials that I'm going to refer back to today, all that is going to be uh, up in the, the show notes to the, the show. And actually, there'll be more references that I wasn't able to ever really explicitly include, but which nonetheless are extremely worth, uh, very much worth anyone's time to, to peruse. So in any event, the, the report from the Federal Indi Indian Boarding School Initiative begins thusly. Quote, the department found that between 1819 and 1969, the federal Indian boarding school system consisted of 408 federal schools across 37 states or then territories. This includes 21 schools in Alaska and seven in Hawaii. Some individual federal Indian boarding schools accounted for multiple sites. The 408 federal Indian boarding schools accordingly comprised 431 specific sites. And by the way, uh, I'm going to skip forward uh, pretty far in the report, but there's just a little more background that I think is helpful just in terms of giving us some sense of the scope of what we're be what's, what's being looked at here. So to continue the quote, but much later in the report, quote, outside the scope of the investigation, the department also identified over 1,000 other federal and non-federal institutions including Indian day schools, sanitariums, asylums, orphanages, and standalone dormitories. Some of the other aforementioned institutions may have involved education of Indian people, mainly Indian children, unquote. So for folks who are not aware, these boarding schools that, that again, continue to exist in the latter half of the 20th century, right? again, that latter date was 1969. So I think for most of us, we would define this as very much current event. So these schools we, uh, were specifically designed to re-educate Native youth in North America to reflect the culture and particularly the economic values of white settlers. Students were punished, often brutally, sometimes to the point of death, for any trace of their own culture that they held on to, including their language, their religious pr practices, and any connections they attempted to maintain with their own families. To accomplish these goals, the method of education quickly began to resemble that of military training, with an overwhelming element of what we would surely call condoned hazing in any other context. Now, I'll read from the report on this as well. Quote, The federal Indian boarding school system deployed systematic 
militarized and identity alteration methodologies to attempt to assimilate American Indian, Alaskan Native, and Native Hawaiian children through education, including, but not limited to, the following. First, renaming Indian children from Indian to English names. Second, cutting the hair of Indian children. Third, discouraging or preventing the use of American Indian, Alaskan Native, and Native Hawaiian languages, religions, and cultural practices. And fourth, organizing Indian and Native Hawaiian children into units performing military drills. Unquote. Now, I should say about this federal report, though I trust that it is very well verified, meaning anything we hear in this report, I'm going to largely trust to be true unless we see a preponderance of evidence to the, to the alternative. However, it's not so much what the report includes as what it excludes that we need to, where we need to develop some healthy skepticism. And I don't say this to, to uh, criticize the folks who wrote the report. They themselves say this is an initial report. There are going to be many more to come. They're only just beginning to dig into the realities of these things, particularly when it comes to compiling the numbers of students who were affected, including the number of student fatalities that were experienced in these schools. So I want to keep that in mind. Anything we hear that is included in this, I'm going to largely trust to be true. Things that are excluded, things that have not yet been verified, a lot more is going to come out. And I think we always need to bear this in mind, given that this report, I think, doesn't go nearly far enough in terms of representing what, unfortunately, I believe the reality will be once it's uncovered. But it's a little bit of a digression there. So included in all that is the fact that this, this report doesn't necessarily really dive into the specific details of some of the horrors uh, that were experienced. I've, so for one, just a, as one instance, uh, one of the firsthand accounts I, I read was a, a woman wrote of being stripped naked and scrubbed with lye with particular focus paid to her genitalia. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I, I gave that as one it's a horrible example, but just to give some sense of the level of brutality here, a federal report isn't necessarily going to convey the if you will, the, the sort of tangible emotion behind it that it most certainly should. Now, one can only assume the individual brutality varied widely, you know, from school to school. It varied widely, presumably from staff person to staff person. But assume in any event that there was certainly little or no check, official check on the brutality of these schools. Again, maybe there were good people somewhere putting somewhat of a stop to this, but that none of that was systemic. That was purely incidental. Now, and I will say further, I've never heard of a single white person, and even the most extreme cases, being held accountable for their actions in these schools or being held accountable for some of the, uh, it, again, even the fatalities that occurred in these schools. Now, the purported goal of these schools, and this is, this is I, I'm practically reading from the business plan of the schools themselves, so to accept the most friendly possible view the for most forgiving possible press that we can have on these schools, we would say that the primary focus of education was on building what we would call quote-unquote marketable skills, trade skills in this case, that would be required by participants in a quote-unquote settled community, and that would, as such, encourage the shift on the part of Native folks towards adopting the same economic standards and goals and practices as the rest of the country. 
the same economic goals and practices, I should say, as the white settlers that very much surrounded the native folks at this point. Though the report does not go so far as to point out that the skills taught in the Indian schools were not actually all that relevant to the economy of the time, and granted native youth who did survive and complete that training, it granted them really very few additional standard employment options. So even in the one thing that was meant to be the honestly, quote-unquote, quasi-decent thing that these schools were supposed to do, it pretty much failed in those in that particular goal as well. But thinking about that purported economic goal of these schools, here we have, when we look at that goal, here we have the crux of this entire notion of, our, of the changing of the minds, of the colonizing of the mind that we've been talking about all this time, at least as it plays out in this particular instance. If we look at the imperialist motivation in this case, it was primarily to curtail traditional native hunting practices outside of the reservations in the West. That was really the primary purpose for these schools. It was what was meant to be accomplished on a kind of societal level. By way of a bit of context, as we recall, in, in the 19th century, America was expanding. The West was being parceled up and populated and it was an important aspect of America's ongoing economic growth. Westward expansion was really the obsession of the American mindset for a period of time in the 19th century. Now, I'm going to put this very, very blandly, about as blandly as I can at the moment. So pretend we're still reading from a federal report or a textbook here. But imagine that the, the interests and the goals and the preferences of these families who were newly settled to the West and, you know, certainly including entrepreneurs who were running around setting up stores and transportation routes, in some cases even setting up whole towns and kind of dominating the, the economy of those towns. The vision of the American West that these folks were seeking surely did not include something like active hunting parties of Native folks ranging across what was increasingly becoming private land. Now, I will say, just as an aside, as we kind of imagine this, this conflict between Native folks who, to survive, were, were hunting, as they traditionally always had, and settled, settled folks who didn't want to see this, didn't want their land infringed upon. So as we see that kind of conflict developing in the American West, which of course is pretty well known at this point in time, I do want to give us just a, just a, a quick look at the terminology we often use when we, meaning we white settlers, when we tell this this history, there's little differences in terminology that we like to use that maybe give a slightly different cast to the story than it might otherwise might. The popular term, if we read some of these histories, particularly histories written by white settlers, the term used to refer to these hunting parties was, in fact, raiding parties. Now, again, red histories, presumably and pretty much entirely by white settlers, who only talk about these folks going and hunting. That's all these, these parties of, of Native folks are doing, but they still refer to them as quote-unquote raiding parties. So given the lore and the myth and the history that had gathered around Native folks, even at this point in time, given the goals the settlers had for the use of the land, we can see that of course it would unsettle them, no, no pun intended, to see quote-unquote hunting parties ranging around across the plains because 
even when there was no actual violence inherent, intended violence against them inherent in these parties, you were still calling them raiding parties, which certainly gives you a sense of the, the sort of mythological threat that was building up in the minds of the white settlers when thinking about these issues. But so why were there hunting parties in the first place? Well, I mean, first, okay, this was one of the traditional means by which native folks had always fed their people. So seems like a pretty good reason to begin with. But additionally, many of the treaties that were signed between the United States government and the various tribes that were relocated and resettled, to use some, some uh, somewhat antiseptic terms that probably aren't completely accurate, the treaties that were written that allotted certain plots of reservation land for these folks, those treaties also dictated that this hunting activity would cease in exchange first for that land, plots of land which by and large folks didn't get to see before they made these agreements, and plots of land that were further far too small to conduct these kinds of hunts, and which generally, if you tried to use them to grow stuff, it wasn't very good at that. They weren't, it wasn't very productive as cropland either. But these treaties said that native folks would stop these hunting parties in exchange for support and supplies from the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the BIA, which anyone who knows anything about these histories, certainly that, uh, that particular federal department has uh, certainly rings through these histories and not in a good way at all. Now, I, I, I'm to, to illustrate that, even staunch enemies of native folks, even at this time, in this time in history, in the 19th century, they would tell you that the BIA was hopelessly corrupt, hopelessly incompetent, and off the ch on the off chance that it ever actually did anything, it certainly was not to provide adequate edible supplies to the, the reservations that they'd set up. So bringing us back to the fact that there was very little choice on the part of the native folks if they wanted to survive, if they wanted to feed their people, their families, there was very little choice for them but to hunt, but to continue this practice of, of staging hunting parties. Now, confronted by this quandary, somehow uh, the best solution, of course, from the perspective of the settlers, confronted by this quandary, the best solution seemed to be to teach native folks trades that would better suit them to, to involvement in the settler American economy. And of course, to participate in that economy, one needs to develop formal skills, but that's not all of it, right? It's not just about the formal skills that you need to be competitive and to survive in this, this new American economy that's developing here. You also need to learn to act in a way that fits with the culture of the, the people that you're going to be conducting business with, right? So that meant that an additional goal for these schools was not just to teach formal skills, it was also to teach people how to act, how to behave in a way that would be acceptable to the white settlers that they'd be doing business with. And hey, even if it turns out that with these new great skills that were taught in these schools, even if it turns out the native folks were not going to be successful as business people, at least, so goes the settler thinking, at least if we acclimate natives to settler culture, hopefully that will at least make it so they no longer run around in these quote-unquote raiding parties, you know, hunting for the food they cannot otherwise attain. Thus, in addition to whatever formal skills these schools did or did not effectively teach, 
a significant aspect of their mandate became cultural erasure, ensuring that no trace of their native personhood survived the education process for these, these students, for these children. To put it in our terminology, the terminology that we use here on the show, a significant and explicit aspect of these schools was the colonization of the mind, was changing the mind of, of native youth, changing the mind to better resemble that of, you know, effectively European settlers, even though they're now calling themselves American. Now, there's a quote from a guy, a general in the American army, in fact, named Richard Henry Pratt. Pratt spent eight years fighting, quote unquote, Indian raiding parties, again, which are, keep saying this, they're just actually hungry people who were out hunting for food since they had no other means of feeding their people. But still, let's keep calling them raiding parties. And hopefully that will, that will make our sort of uh, our, our point the way we need it to be, be made here. Now, Pratt uh, is relevant to this story in a number of ways. Most significantly, Pratt went on to found the Carlisle Indian Boarding School in Pennsylvania, which is one of the earlier, it was also what you might call one of the model Indian boarding schools that a lot of other schools were sort of designed to emulate. Now, it was from Pratt, and others most likely, from whom this military methodology of the schools was derived. Right? Of course, he's an American general. He was running an American prison camp for, for natives. He was fighting natives in the West. So, of course, what does he know? He knows military practice. So when seeking to set up these schools, he did it on a military model. Here's this quote from Pratt. Pratt, who I will say is regarded as being a relatively good guy when you read the white settler history of these of these, these affairs. He's portrayed as being a guy who really did have the best interest of native indigenous folks in, in mind as he was doing what he was doing. Whatever mistakes he might have made, at least his intentions were good. Well, okay, let's uh, take a listen to this quote here and we can see, and see what we want to do with, with uh, General Pratt's uh, uh, intentions here. Anyway, quote, A great general has said that the only good Indian is a dead one, and that high sanction of his destruction has been an enormous factor in promoting Indian massacres. In a sense, I agree with the sentiment, but only in this, that all the Indian there is in the race should be dead. Kill the Indian in him to save the man. Unquote. And here, of course, we have what I think fundamentally passes for our mission statement for this business plan of cultural genocide, of colonizing the mind, of changing the mind. This right here, we see the core of this changing of the mind idea at work, and we see exactly the intention that was behind these schools. And to give it its best possible light, and it's not easy to do, but let's just take it in context for a moment and say, okay, what? How do we read this guy as possibly having good intentions? In his mind, the good intention was to civilize a group of people, change who they were so that the truth of them, the truth of their more mature personhood could emerge in place of this, the, the, the prior indigenous savagery, the, the Indian that we need to kill off from the race so that actual human beings, actual men and women could emerge from that race. So this really is Mill's contention in a nutshell. This is, 
forced despotism to help a people mature. So again, we might not want to go so far as to call those good intentions. In fact, of course, we most certainly do not. But that fundamentally is what's behind all of this and what's behind the thinking here that Pratt is talking about. Now, as I said, Pratt did model many of the practices of his Indian school, the Carlisle School, on his experience in the military. That was really the only life, professional life experience he had to draw on, including this, uh, this military experience. As I said, it included time spent running a prison camp for displaced Native folks who had been captured in the American West and sent back East. But this time, folks who presumably were at least ancestrally from back East to begin with, they were captured in the American West and sent back East, but this time they were sent to the swamplands of Florida, where they themselves were not in any way indigenous to. In addition to the military style employed by the Carlisle School, Pratt also employed many of the purposeful techniques of cultural erasure. We talked briefly about the practice of cutting the Native children's hair upon arrival, and I should say, most Native sources that discuss, that discuss this, they cite the hair as a significant aspect of cultural connectedness. So it was most certainly an act that tore away aspects of culture from the children who experienced it. Now, military uniforms were also common for students. Further, the practice of enlisting students to discipline one another, to essentially force some older students to embody the school's power over younger students. This, of course, when you do this, this is dissolving the bonds that the students feel to one another and ensuring that all of their social connectedness ran through their connection to the school. Now, this was also quite common, primarily, as I say, as a means of further dissolving any of that sense of connectedness that the Native youth might have felt to one another, and thus, of course, to their own culture, to their own families, to their own societies, from which, of course, they had been displaced, often by hundreds or thousands of miles. Now, the military themes and practices used by these schools, this, of course, is also quite notable. Military-style education has been around for a long time in most every culture, but what exactly do we mean when we talk about a military style of education? When we look at the purpose and the practice of uh, something like boot camp, which, of course, is the purest form of military education that most of us here in America are, are familiar with and, and elsewhere. They have similar, similar setups in pretty much every military. We certainly all know that there's, there's more at work in, in basic training, so-called boot camp, than simply setting a baseline of skills and knowledge to be shared by incoming recruits, right? It's not just an orientation training. The purpose and I'm not criticizing, I should say, I'm not criticizing the, the use of this, of this practice in a military setting, particularly not with adults who have chosen to enroll in the military. And in fact, I don't know how you could have an institution like the military without practices like these. But the purpose of a boot camp, the purpose of a military education, is to do more, much, much more than just teach skills, of course. The purpose in boot camp is to essentially create a clean break from a previously held set of assumptions about acceptable behavior and social interactions and views of and responses to authority, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Essentially, boot camp basic training, it acts like a, a way of hitting the reset button on a large portion of a person's psyche 
in order to prepare them to have a very different set of practices and standards, comprehensive practices and standards of how they interact with one another, how they interact with authority, how they pattern their days, all of that's gonna change. And this is how we hit the reset button and prepare someone for, to have all of those patterns essentially repatterned, reset to welcome this, them to this new way of living. Now, of course, the same is true in the application of these kinds of practices to the education in the Indian schools. Military training, in this case, years and years of it, with little exposure to family and friends outside of the schools, no exposure to native cultural practices. The purposes of this kind of education in the native schools was clearly to remake the way the students would interact with the world and the way they would define themselves. Of course, for anyone who is aware of these schools, very little, very little of this actually needs saying, but certainly we see in this a brutal means of reshaping the minds of Native children. And I use the word brutal, lest there be any mistake at how brutal these schools were. So let me take two more excerpts from this federal report from the boarding school initiative. Quote, Federal Indian boarding school rules were often enforced through punishment, including corporal punishment such as solitary confinement, flogging, withholding food, whipping, slapping, and cuffing. The federal Indian boarding school system at times made older Indian children punish younger Indian children. The department's investigation has already identified marked or unmarked burial sites at approximately 53 different schools across the federal Indian boarding school system. As the investigation continues, the department expects the number of identified burial sites to increase. Based on the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative investigation's initial analysis, approximately 19 federal Indian boarding schools accounted for over 500 American Indian, Alaskan Native, and Native Hawaiian child deaths. As the investigation continues, the department expects the number of recorded deaths to increase. Unquote. Now, to reiterate what the report already makes quite clear, these numbers, these already distressing, uh, this already distressing figure of over 500 children killed in publicly sponsored schools, these numbers are certainly far too low. I assume they are farcically too low based on what we know about the activities of these schools here and in other countries. I don't say that to be critical of the report or the folks who are putting it together, but these numbers don't even begin to line up with similar reports from the U.S. and elsewhere. So Canada, for example, and this has been a pretty big story. Canada ran similar schools. They've been in the process of exhuming unmarked graves from these schools. And they've already discovered the remains of more than a thousand students discovered in an unmarked grave at one single school. And there as well, advocates say there will likely be thousands of more to come and potentially further thousands that are never discovered. To be clear, again, no one behind the United States report is, is contesting this. Their efforts are ongoing. They're expecting to find the remains of many, many more children. But if a final figure is reached, it will likely also be far lower than the reality, as so many of these deaths will be 
untraceable, and certainly were unreported at the time. And yet, of course, whatever numbers are finally arrived at, they will be far, far higher than the current count. And while these schools were, as I say, brutal places to experience, it was not only the direct violence that led to student deaths. Rampant disease was also a factor, as with anything to do with Native folks in the United States, adequate supplies, adequate room, adequate sanitation, adequate food, all that, that were very, very rarely available to these schools or to their students. Suicide was also a considerable factor, as many students simply could not bear the lives they were consigned to lead in these schools. Now, if you're wondering how students were recruited into such an experience, understand that most were not recruited at all, but were quite literally stolen from their families. Native folks who are alive today talk about their own abductions, the abductions of their own children. There were some voluntary instances of children being sent to these schools, though I take that up one level and I wonder, what does voluntary even mean when folks are already in the inherently coercive state of being on a place like a reservation? But with that aside, there were certainly countless instances of children being simply abducted and sent to these schools. Now, let's look at this in a broader context, particularly in light of our ongoing discussion about the role these kinds of institutions and practices had in this process of changing minds. The stated purpose of these schools was re-education, specifically an attempt to force the erasure of Native culture from whole generations of students. Now, whether we call those attempts quote-unquote successful in the specific and already horrific goal of cultural erasure, whether quote-unquote successful or not in their goal of eradicating any particular child's cultural identity or any tribe or community's cultural identity, imagine what happens to the structure of a family if whole generations are violently removed from it. Imagine what happens in a community if most of its families have experienced this trauma. Now, if we think of a family or a community's history, sort of like a spine, if we think of it figuratively in that sense, where each generation is a vertebra, well, this process removes one, two, perhaps even three of these vertebra entirely and replaces them with very little but disconnection and trauma. Now, the purpose of all of this, like every aspect of the colonization of the mind, the purpose of all of this was to remove as much identity as possible, certainly including language, including tradition, including ritual, and to replace all of that with our super spreader memes, right? Our, our European rational chauvinist worldview. But even without thinking ahead of the attempt to to the, to the attempt to replace a native worldview or thought process with a colonist worldview or thought processes, we need only think of the profound damage that is done to a way of thinking about and living in a world when the mind of an individual or the collective mentality of a community must adjust to this kind of damage. So to make this more tangible, I want to read a piece from a recent article on Native News Online. Now, by the way, as an aside, I, I really recommend the site as 
just a great clearinghouse, one of a number of great clearinghouses for this kind of news that you really very rarely see in the, on the major networks, obviously. The link to this is also in the show notes. Now, the author of this particular piece, Levi Rickert, recounts a handful of stories that he'd heard directly from Indian school survivors. Now, my apologies in advance, as they are hardly joyful reading, but I do think they show an angle of this that might not immediately occur to us. And fair warning, this is a long quote. I, I, I think all of it should be heard, and, and it's certainly not my place to edit, edit any of this for length. So with thanks to the author and certainly with uh, profound gratitude to the people who shared their stories, quote, Several adults told stories of abuse they suffered at Indian boarding schools and others shared how boarding schools affected their families. One Ojibwa woman shook and wept, telling us how her mother never hugged her during her life. The mother had learned during her years at an Indian boarding school that she should never hug or show physical affection. Last week's release of the report on the purposeful and deliberate plan by the federal government to destroy Native families also brought back memories of an interview I did with American Indian Movement co-founder Dennis Banks, also Ojibwa. During the interview, Banks recounted his experiences attending various Indian boarding schools. He told me the experience caused him to maintain an indifferent attitude towards his mother because he felt she had abandoned him during the years he attended Indian boarding schools. Banks recalled on certain occasions school officials would announce a mail call so that students could get mail from home. He would show up, but he never received any mail. He felt as if his mother did not love him. Years passed by, and he eventually was able to go home when he was in his late teen years. He said the first day home was awkward, but on the second day home, his mother made him a blueberry pie because she knew it was his favorite. He felt then perhaps things could return to normal. So he began talking to her and asked her why didn't she ever send him any letters or try to bring him home. She told him she did. He did not believe her. For the rest of their lives together, he told me, he would look at his mother and have a sense of indifference toward her. The feeling lasted until she died. Decades later, while he was in his 70s, Banks saw an internet advertisement with the information about how he could obtain his own Indian boarding school records. He followed through on the offer and received several boxes with his school records. In the boxes, Banks found 14 unopened letters from his mother. He took them to his mother's grave, where he sat on a lawn chair reading them one by one. Inside one of the letters was a money order to pay for a bus ticket home. Unquote. Now, having just read that, I want to encourage us to do something which might not come naturally and which, in fact, might seem somewhat callous. I want us to think about this quote for, for just for a moment, not from the perspective of these individuals or of this family. Rather, I want us to think about this in the abstract. Now, what could I possibly mean by that in this particular context? Naturally, we think first of the children who were, in essence, physically and psychologically tortured in these schools. We think of their parents and of their children 
and we think of how the trauma echoes both forward and backward across generations. But to understand the full impact of this damage, we must also think about the effect on the overall organism of civil society, of community. Considering the communities that experience this kind of hurt, not once, but often time and again. Damage done to communities over generations, in turn, becomes damage inflicted upon whole generations and upon the generations that follow them. Now, take this further into the abstract, but I, I, I believe, not inconsequentially, consider the mechanisms of community, consider the mechanism of family, of civil society, when they operate the way they are supposed to. When they operate the way they are supposed to, they should perform the function, in part, of cultivating minds that perpetuate aspects of culture, perpetuate aspects of worldview, perpetuate aspects of identity, of belonging to a community. Civil society, community, education, family, these institutions should convey ways of thinking, should convey traditions, should convey values. In essence, these are the mechanisms that should be there to cultivate individual minds in a way that reflects an overall worldview. But that mechanism, in this case, that mechanism itself is profoundly damaged. Which means, in turn, that whatever damage was done in these schools, in their explicit attempts to alter individual minds, that damage must be considered next to the, if you will, the, the systemic damage that is done to the mechanisms of civil society, of community, and of family. Again, those mech damage done to those mechanisms that are meant to cultivate not only individual minds, but to maintain the worldviews, maintain the outlook, maintain the collective mind of a given people, and, if you will, the particular way those people cultivate and use the human faculty of mind. Put differently, whatever damage was done to the countless individual children, and I'll reiterate that that damage was far more profound than most of us can possibly imagine, but that damage did not and could not possibly have stopped there. It was passed back into communities. It was passed down through generations, but it also did not stop there. This process and the many processes of imperialism, when they could not alter minds that were different than those of the European rational chauvinists, when they, they couldn't affect an individual mind, they either destroyed the people who possessed that mind or they did profound damage to the way those minds were cultivated in civil society. In essence, not only damaging, doing inestimable damage to individual minds, but damaging the mechanism by which further minds, further generations that shared this worldview could be produced. So, in summary, what we've seen today is one particular example by which, I should say, one particular example that I have barely scraped the surface of, if we want to just talk about tallying up hurt, tallying up trauma, I've done 
very, very little to begin to pull back the curtain on how extensive this one process was. This one process that was uh, one of hundreds, maybe thousands of separate elements of imperialism that were inflicted on just these indigenous communities, never mind when we look at the entire project of imperialism as it was conducted over the course of centuries. Now we're going to turn next week, and actually for the next two weeks, I think, to the mechanisms of imperialism in more settled societies. We'll see a more philosophically intricate process in one sense, and one that is very much brutal, but in my opinion, and I, I certainly don't want I have no interest in trying to compare tragedies that I didn't even begin to experience, but uh, this is not a process that I found to be as brutal as what we discussed here today. It is, you might say, it's a process in these settled societies that's more about altering a society and the minds therein, rather than simply eliminating those minds entirely, as we saw here today. Now, as I've mentioned, of course, uh, in recent episodes, I am trying to get into the habit of asking you good folks some questions at the end of these episodes, but I think we're going to skip that today. If you have some extra time to spend on this, maybe check out the show notes, check out some of the original sources for this. Certainly just Googling, you can get some, just some uh, really enlightening, so often very difficult firsthand stories that can be read online, uh, or, or actually often heard online, some really fascinating, very important aspects of our history that certainly many of us did not, uh, receive uh, to the extent that we should have. Otherwise, as I'm sure there are folks listening to this who have some direct experience with this history, if you have any interest in getting in touch at all, I'd be absolutely honored to hear from you. I certainly know I'm only beginning to learn about this for myself. So if you have a story, if you have an idea, if you have a perspective that you would like to share, I would be, as I say, I would be honored to hear it and to uh, be part of your sharing it in this forum if you had any interest in that. And with that, thank you as always for tuning in. I'll speak with you again next time. I'm looking forward to it.